we should stop calling sin, sin, and instead be uncritically accepting of any and every behavior. No, uh, the rest of the Bible teaches clearly that we need to be extremely careful when it comes to sin. Um, and we are to love what God loves, and we are to hate what God hates. And we are right to call out murder as murder, sexual immorality as sexual immorality, slander as slander, greed as greed, etc., etc. So that's one thing that Jesus doesn't mean. A second thing that Jesus doesn't mean is that we have to unconditionally accept being treated badly by others. We don't have to accept bad treatment. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus details for us a process that we are to follow when a brother or sister Christian sins against us. And it doesn't begin by saying, if your brother or sister sins, remember that you too are a sinner. No, it doesn't say that. On the contrary, Jesus teaches there, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Matthew 18, uh, 15. So Jesus is not teaching that we just have to, that we just have to, 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 to take it when people treat us badly. Indeed, uh, churches are to be places where sinful behavior is challenged and sinners made to be accountable for their words and actions and the hurt that they have caused. Uh, we are, if you like, correctional institutions, places of forgiveness, to be sure, but not places where do not judge is taken as license to suspend all critical judgment with respect to right and wrong. Thirdly, something else that Jesus doesn't mean by his proverb, we can even see there on the same page, Jesus calls us to judge certain people, indeed, in that instance, prophets. In other words, teachers, people coming with a message. Um, verse 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. Thus, in certain situations, such as people, um, such as appraising people who preach or teach or prophesy in Christ's name, it is right to examine their life and conduct, as well as their teaching, with a critical eye. So those three things which Jesus doesn't mean help us to suddenly see that perhaps understanding this proverb is not so easy. But that's okay, because fortunately it comes with unpacking. Uh, verses 2 and following, Jesus continues, For in the same way that you judge others, it will be you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, what is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about measuring people, isn't he? He's talking about whether people measure up to our expectations, to our standards. 
This is about also lacking insight into how well we might measure up even by our own standards. And uh, then Jesus uses a parable. First comes a proverb, then comes a parable to explain the proverb. In the parable, the central character is me. Me, the listener. And I see that my brother has a problem. I see that he is in need. The context of the parable suggests that we should see the sawdust as something that needs correction. My brother is in need of help. He is in need of correction. And I assume that I can and should help. And I am half right. What I fail to see is that I too have the same problem. In, in fact, actually, I fail to see that I have the same problem, but much worse. But when I look at myself asking God for insight, when I look at myself first, then I'm able to help myself by understanding something actually about myself that, that was embarrassingly obvious to everyone around me. They, they could all see the plank sticking out of Stephen Daly's eye. It was just too embarrassing to mention, uh, like chives on your front teeth. Everyone could see it but me. I didn't see it, but now that I do see it, I can do something for my brother. Well, uh, many people have guessed, and guessing is all that we can do, but it's a good guess. Many people have guessed that this parable might have been incredibly funny uh, to Jesus' audience on that day. This could have been a real side splitter. Certainly the image of a man walking around with this plank sticking out of his eye and not seeing it is comic. It's, It's good drama. Well, so then, once I've taken a good hard look at myself and with insight taken the time to my own need for correction, now I'm in a position to sympathetically and insightfully, with clear-sightedness, insightfully help my brother deal with a problem that actually I know all about. So then the parable doesn't call me to stop helping people. The parable doesn't call me to stop judging sawdust in the eye as a problem. It doesn't call me to just accept sawdust in the eye without judging. The Bible sees it as unloving to not correct a brother who needs correction. The parable does, however, call me to stop and think about myself first, whether I'm being a hypocrite by challenging a problem or issue in somebody else's life, whilst all the time it's in my life too, only worse. Um, And there's an English um, expression, a figure of speech, an idiom. It's been around for a long time, uh, since at least the days of Shakespeare, maybe well before. And you may have heard it, you may have used it. And the expression is this, Ah, that's the pot calling the kettle black. And the expression comes from uh, the kitchens of the Middle Ages, where cooking would have been done over open fires or on top of ovens with, with, with fire in, in, and in them, and cast iron pots and kettles would quickly be blackened by use. The pot calls the kettle black, pointing out that it is old, tarnished, and dirty, and pointing out that in order to score points over the kettle. 
without the wisdom or insight to recognize that its own condition is exactly the same. Uh, another, that's the standard interpretation, another ancient uh, but alternate understanding of that same expression is that the blackened pot sees its own reflection in the shiny, polished brass of the new kettle. In which case, the meaning is actually still much the same. And, and that is that we often feel contempt and resentment and frustration over sins and failings in others that actually are in us. That's why we find it so unacceptable. And I've been taught and I've learned and I've found it an exceedingly useful lesson that every time I feel contempt for someone, that's an opportunity to learn a lot about myself. Whenever I feel contempt for someone rather than compassion, uh, that's an opportunity to learn a lot about myself. Well, what is Jesus talking about with his proverb? Uh, he is talking about the clear and present danger of what we might call judgmentalism, an attitude of self-righteous indignation at the failings of others. It is the pleasure we take in measuring others with a view to pronounce them as not measuring up. Judgmentalism, criticizing a person's behavior or being with a, with, with a view to rejecting them or lording it over them, with perhaps a view to shaming them, with a view to perhaps decreasing that person standing in the community while simultaneously elevating our own. The person who does this sets themselves up as judge and as the measurer of what's good. But it is extremely important that we avoid judgmentalism, that we avoid being judgmental. The dangers that Jesus attaches to, to this behavior are, firstly, the danger of coming under the judgment of God, and secondly, the danger of being a hypocrite. Verse 2, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, now, uh, in, in the New Testament, um, passive verbs, that is a verb where the, where the one who's doing the action is hidden, passive verbs usually refer to the activity of God. You will be judged and it will be measured to you are passive verbs because it's not stated who's doing the judging. It's not said who's doing the measuring. The actor is hidden. But the implication is that the one who judges and the one who measures is God. So then, uh, um, uh, and the reason um, this is so common in Matthew is because Jews like to be very cautious about ever saying the word God. So you use passive verbs to talk about God without using the word God. But we don't have to be quite like that. So let's put the word God back in the verse and you get something like this. For in the same way that you judge others, God will judge you. And with the measure you use for others, God will measure you. It's not specified as to what exactly that will look like. But, but we know from the rest of the New Testament that God chooses uh, regularly to discipline his children as a loving father disciplines his son through hardship. He could either, perhaps he could uh, not shield us from the consequences of our own hypocrisy. 
And then suddenly we might have to deal with public shaming, loss of position, being fired, ministry failure, uh, whatever it might be. Alternatively or additionally, our measuring and judging here and now may on the day when Christ comes and judges and repays everyone for what they have done, uh, it could mean that we forfeit eternal rewards or pleasures that could have been ours. Why? Because we ourselves have given God the legal right to do that. With the measure we used on others, so too now we are measured. Well, immediately uh, following the parable, actually the parable's not named. Usually people name parables. I'd like to call this parable uh, the parable of me, the half-blind optometrist. After the parable of me, the half-blind optometrist, comes uh, a proverb. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Um, If the meaning of this proverb is not immediately clear to you, don't worry, uh, you're not alone. Uh, This proverb has caused enormous amounts of confusion over the centuries. It is difficult to understand, and I think that that was Christ's intention. Sometimes things need to be said carefully. Well, uh, let's think about the proverb. In the Old Testament, dogs and pigs are unsavory creatures. Uh, Dogs were not kept as pets. If they were kept at all, they were big, vicious hounds used for guarding property. Otherwise, uh, when people refer to dogs, the reference is to uh, wild dogs, Um, packs of wild dogs that, that, you know, is quite common all over the world. Um, And uh, I know from um, the experiences of a friend of mine uh, in in Iran uh, that if you're out in the countryside and suddenly you're surrounded by a pack of wild dogs, you are in serious trouble uh, because they are crafty, difficult, and very potentially deadly. Um, Pigs um, are unclean animals. We probably all know that uh, in the Old Testament. But what we might not know, but everybody knew back then, is that pigs are also actually quite dangerous animals. Pig farmers today uh, know that. A, a large boar or a sow uh, can uh, easily kill um, uh, an adult human in certain circumstances. Uh, so both of these unsavory and potentially treacherous animals they actually feature together in another part of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, wherein Peter uses two proverbs to describe the behavior of false teachers who mislead Christian congregations. Peter writes, Of them, that is, of false teachers, of them the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. So that's something about the animals involved that we need to keep in mind. Another ancient worry that we might not know about is that the ancient rabbis worried about wild dogs eating the meat attached to bones, attached to animals that were dead but had been offered in sacrifice in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and then you dispose of those animals, how do you make sure those animals aren't eaten by packs of wild dogs? 
So then, uh, when the disciples, on, on the day of this sermon, when the disciples first heard Jesus' proverb here, what they probably would have actually heard in terms of their meaning was, do not give holy things, that is to say, meat sacrificed, um, uh, meat offered in sacrifice. Do not give meat offered in sacrifice to dogs. To which, of course, the obvious response is, like, duh. I mean, that's just so obvious. Why would you even say it? Do not give pearls to pigs. I mean, like, duh. Uh, it's just so obvious. Pearls, are, you know, one of the greatest treasures the biblical world knows of. Why would you throw them, you know, as, like pig feed? Yeah, to be sure, it, it looks, that they look like, you know, something that might be edible. But actually, giving meat to wild dogs or pearls to pigs look edible but aren't, they are actually both rather obvious ways of finding yourself being attacked by a large, belligerent creature. Like, duh, like obvious. The proverb is difficult to understand at first glance. Some things need to be subtly said, and sometimes we need to think about things carefully. I think here we need to think about things carefully. Um, because of the way that holy things referred usually to meat offered in sacrifice, Christians in the early church often assumed that Jesus was saying, don't let unbaptized people receive Holy Communion. But almost certainly Jesus was not saying that. Uh, no, uh, we can see here that Christ's proverb stands as the conclusion to the parable of me, the half-blind optometrist. And so therefore, in that light, it could perhaps be restated in this way. You know, sometimes it's just better not to mention the sawdust. Sometimes you'll do better to just leave the sawdust in that other person's eye. If you offer correction, you will be viciously attacked. Uh, the parable and the proverb together is all about knowing how to, when, and when not to offer correction to other people. What is holy if not the word of God? And what is the pearl of great price if not the law, the knowledge of right and wrong from the Bible? Um, holy wisdom is wisdom to the wise, making the wise wiser. But holy wisdom is folly to foolish people, provoking mockery and ridicule. Um, cor correct a fool and correct a mocker and, and you'll be attacked, you'll be abused. How do we think about these things? Well, God has given us power. Um, God has given us uh, the power to know how to live life successfully by obeying and loving all of his decrees, commandments, and statutes. Or, to put that in another way, we can live flourishingly by seeking Jesus and pursuing his righteousness, his agenda, justice as defined by him. But what we learn here is we have to be very careful about how we use that knowledge. Uh, cars, all cars, come equipped with all of them with a very important piece of emergency equipment. A piece of emergency equipment that can save lives. And it is the horn. 
which used to be found there and uh, might still be found there. Um, that might be an airbag now, in which case the horn will be found there. You're with me? Okay, great. Legally, we are allowed to use our car horns in only three situations. One, to warn of impending collision, a collision that would otherwise be unavoidable if you didn't use the horn. We are allowed legally to use the horn to warn others so as to avoid a collision that otherwise would be unavoidable. Secondly, we are allowed legally to use the horn to frighten birds and animals out of our path if they don't seem to have noticed that we're coming. So then, for example, if we're going down a country road at 110 kilometers an hour, we might see at several hundred meters distance a flock of galahs and know that galahs actually leave it to the last moment and fly in all directions and could end badly for them. So at 300 meters, we'll toot our horn just to get them out of the way, for their sake. Three, you are legally entitled to link your car horn with an alarm device so that your car horn goes off should someone attempt to break into your car. You're allowed to do that. But the point of the horn is primarily to keep everybody safe, to warn of possible imminent collision. It is illegal to use your car horn in any other situation. Now, if you will forgive me for blowing my own horn uh, for a moment, I realized that that had to be true some months ago and before checking my facts on the internet and discovering, um, with self-righteous congratulations, that I was correct. Um, I, I realized that when I toot at others or when they toot at me, it is routinely because I or they have done something annoying. <laughs> get out of my, that's my parking space. Hey, I want to get home before Christmas. But then I realized, actually, it's not my job to rebuke others. And it's not my job to assess other people's driving ability. No, no that's actually the job of the police force. It is not my job to correct bad behavior on the road of others. It just isn't. Even when they're behaving very badly. And Perth drivers, I mean, goodness gracious me. I mean, I just, I, just, I just really hate the way that they totally and consistently fail to, 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 to anticipate my every need and, and totally ignore my need to have the freeway to myself between 5 and 6 p.m. So inconsiderate. But it simply isn't my job to correct the behavior of others. That's the job of the police force. So, um, I guess about six months ago, I made a simple resolve. I resolved that I would not again use my car horn simply because I was annoyed at someone. I didn't realize at the time I made that resolution that I was simply resolving to obey the law. <laughs> uh, using my horn to prevent collision, that is me exercising good judgment. Me using my horn to vent frustration at somebody else's lack of judgment or consideration, that's me being judgmental. And if I honk my horn at the wrong person on the wrong day, if I offer correction to dogs or pigs, uh, speaking proverbially, of course, <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised if I get attacked. 
road rage, we currently call it. Um, in the same way, can I borrow your Bible? In the same way, thank you, Christian. In the same way, the Bible is the most excellent piece of emergency equipment. It keeps us safe. But there is a right way and a wrong way of using it. It is good to use it for people. It is bad to use it against people. And if I quote the Bible to the wrong person on the wrong day, in the wrong way, I shouldn't be surprised if that person tells me where I can insert my Bible or even offers to do it for me. Knowing the difference between exercising judgment and being judgmental is an advanced life skill and it's not an easy one to acquire. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in many public places nowadays, the distinction between being a person of sound judgment and being a judgmental person is a distinction that is almost totally and completely lost on us as a society. But today in helping us see the difference, to learn the difference, and to live the difference, Jesus is teaching us an invaluable lesson, a lesson he expects us to understand and obey. Um, meanwhile, um, many people I know, and I'm absolutely one of those people, uh, I include myself in this, many people find it increasingly difficult to read the West Australian newspaper. One reason for this difficulty is that it reeks of judgmentalism. And journalism shouldn't do that. Judgment, yes, absolutely. Judgmentalism, please no. That is a highway to hypocrisy and the judgment of God. A good question for me now would be, should I point that out to them? In the same way, I think it is fair and right to say that Australian society, whether in print or in telecast or in broadcast or online, we have as a society become highly judgmental, refusing on the one hand to label wickedness and immorality as wickedness and immorality, and yet and nevertheless on the other hand taking every opportunity to exercise self-righteous indignation on what we consider to be to the failings of others. But perhaps more to the point here, it is clear, sadly, from history that both Jewish and Christian communities, synagogues and churches, um, Pharisees and priests, we do have a tendency to use the knowledge of God to become highly judgmental. Judgmental cultures wherein people dare not be themselves for fear of shame, censure, or rejection. Places where people have to put on a show because they dare not share the real struggles that they're having. When we criticize gossiping, do we ourselves gossip? If I condemn greed, can I see it in myself? Judgmental communities become a stench to outsiders because they quickly become obviously hypocritical. Everyone can see the plank, except they themselves. And judgmental communities and judgmental individuals come under the judgment of God because they lose sight of grace. We, we, we they, the, the, the lose sight of the fact that we're, we're just saved by grace. All of us, 
It's the grace of God. We are saved by grace and grace alone by the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior. We become a stench, but we are called to be the fragrance of Christ. Christians and churches are called to represent God and to reflect his character and nature, and therefore we must always be gracious. Gracious people, gracious places. So the the lesson for today. A person of good judgment avoids judgmentalism by first taking a good hard look at themselves. When feeling contempt for another, is it just a mirror I see? Well, let's pray. Um, Father, today we ask as individuals for your forgiveness for being judgmental. Uh, Father, we, we now just take a moment to invite you to perhaps by your Holy Spirit gently show us, each of us, any sin of judgmentalism that you might want us to repent of. Uh, And we ask you to reveal that silently in our hearts. And we, we each ask you, Father, please forgive us. Father, we ask as a church, as a community, we ask your forgiveness for being judgmental. We confess that we are poor, blind, pitiful, hypocritical, and wretched. We confess that we can be a judgmental community, criticizing overtly or implicitly those who are not like us, not extending equally the same welcome to everyone, not being gracious. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, please forgive us. Please change us as we look into the mirror of your word. Please help us to see ourselves as we should and to see you through the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, please help us to attend to the planks in our own eyes, in readiness for the ministry of opening the eyes of others. To the glory of God and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.